0: If you're new with us, we uh, like to go through books of the Bible, and this is one of the weeks where I questioned that. Uh, <laughs> getting into these verses uh, this week, one writer said of this text, this is one of those texts that causes preachers to pace in their studies, asking what does it mean and how do I preach it? And most of the guys that I've been following who have preached through Ecclesiastes conveniently skipped uh, verses 15 uh, to 29. Indeed, most of the sermon series that I've followed seem to kind of fizzle out about this point in Ecclesiastes. Um, but I don't want to fizzle, I want to sizzle. Uh, so we're, we're going we're gonna to keep moving and try to make sense of all this. Uh, so let's pray and ask for the Lord's help, shall we? Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, the passage last week and and this week, uh, both here in chapter 7, have many references to the early chapters of Genesis. That's not new to the whole book of Ecclesiastes. There have been uh, several uh, echoes and allusions to uh, those first three chapters. But particular phrases have been uh, very very common as you've read through chapter 7, words like naming or uh, thorn bushes, uh, beginning, work of God, man, woman. Um, and it all concludes with verse 29 that God made man upright. Man is the Hebrew word for Adam. He made humanity upright, but they've sought out many schemes. And so as we read the text, we're, we need to read it with that background in mind, that it's a reflection upon the fallen world, but we also have a whole Bible. And so we know that uh, the fall isn't the last word, that we live in a fallen world, but we have a redeemer. We have one who will reverse this curse, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus but Ecclesiastes forces us to look at this world as it is. Um, I don't know if you've ever looked into curved glass before or a, a broken mirror, perhaps. Maybe you broke the mirror, uh, that's a bad joke. Um, but you, you, you look into it and all of a sudden your neck is really long, you know what I'm saying? Or your, your uh, forehead is extremely big as you look into this, this uh, glass or your chin is, is really, really long. Uh, you know, you've got a long face. Um, a friend of mine says he passes the time in London when he, by sitting on a, a, a train, and he says a particular seat he can sit in uh, where the, the glass is curved at eye level, and it makes him look like he's bald. And uh, he just amuses himself by this little, uh, this little experience. And I've had those occasions as well, looking in glass in various uh, places where if Kimberly's next to me, I, it can be like her hair is on my head. And uh, it's just a glorious picture of my future of, of a new creation with my, with my great locks that I'm going to praise Jesus with one day. Or maybe you've, you've been at the carnival before, and you look in these mirrors, and it makes you look like, you know, you've got these massive biceps, uh, and you just, you just stare for a while. You just don't want to leave, you know, thinking about what you might look like if you actually uh, worked out. And... Um, but all of those experiences do not reflect reality. That's those mirrors, that, that glass doesn't reflect who we actually are. And Ecclesiastes has no curved glass. It has, it has no carnival mirror. It forces us to see the world exactly the way it is. It's an honest look at the harsh realities of life in a fallen world, the complexity of life the perplexity of life, the frustrations of life. And that's what we've been looking at. There's no funny business here in Ecclesiastes. It's just the issues, the problems. And we know this world is under a curse. We don't have to prove that. We just look at the news, don't we? We just look around us. We see tsunamis, we see tornadoes. Think of our friends in Nashville today. Cancer, global viruses, miscarriages, infertility, pain broken dreams, broken vows, unstable jobs, orphans, blown tires, broken legs, leaky faucets, monthly bills, failed adoptions, chronic back pain, severed relationships, racism, bee stings, abortions, death of loved ones, and the list goes on and on and on and on. That's reality. That's life in a broken world. And Ecclesiastes acknowledges this for us. But as we've been saying, we don't read Ecclesiastes by itself. We want to read it in light of the whole story of, Bi- of the Bible. And this text, like other texts in Ecclesiastes, helps us to see how much we need a Redeemer. How much we need Christ's redeeming grace for Adam's helpless race. And so I want you to see in this passage four things that the writer wants us to come face to face with as we look at life in this world, we see the death of the righteous. We see the path of real godliness. We see the problem of sin, and we see the grace of redemption. The death of the righteous. This really bothers the writer. I don't know if you've ever seen that theological movie, The Princess Bride. But right, Wesley says in, at one place, life is pain. Anybody else that's, that's saying different is trying to sell you something. And Christianity is not selling you something. It's proclaiming something. But it's not selling you anything. Christianity tells you the truth that life does not always seem fair. That's, that's, we tell that, we own that. Jesus told us we would have trouble, right? So we're not trying to sell people something that if you become a Christian, you'll have no problems. Right? Notice how he says it in verse 15, in my vain life I have seen everything. <laughs> you can hear like an older man saying this, I've seen it all. And one of the things that, that bothers him, that perplexes him, is that he's seen a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and he's seen a wicked person prolong their life by doing evil. And it's, he, it's him saying this, this, this is not right. This shouldn't be the case. Now the righteous, the, the, you know, simply defined, is the person who obeys God's word. Perfect example of righteousness is, of course, the Lord Jesus who fulfilled all righteousness. We want to know what righteousness looks like. We look to Christ. But by being righteous, by obeying God's word, by living in and through Christ and trying to walk in his ways, does not ensure a long life. Some of the righteous, he says in verse 15, actually die young. Therefore, the length of our days is not determined by the depth of our maturity. Sometimes the wicked prosper. The psalmist wrestles with this all through the psalms, like Psalm 37. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Now, we should know that, but there is something, I think, innate in humanity that, that believes we, we should get what we deserve. Right, that if we have been good, we deserve good. And if we've been bad, we deserve bad. That's actually not what the Bible is teaching. That's actually karma. And we don't believe in karma, which teaches you you know, you get what you deserve. If something bad happens, people assume that it's because they did something bad, and some believe in a previous life even. And if something good has happened, then you obviously have earned good. You've earned prosperity but all you need to do, my friends, is read the book of Job and see that the most righteous man who was on the earth suffered more than anyone else on the earth. And his, his, his friends were terrible counselors because they were suggesting it was because Job had done something bad. No, sometimes you will suffer even though you've been faithful. Sometimes you might even die young. I mean, we th- I think of, of, of kids who are in hospitals who love Jesus and you're like, why them? And their parents would gladly trade places with them, right? And if that bothers you, then you can identify here with the writer. It bothers him. Why are the righteous dying so young? And why do the evildoers prolong their life in their evildoing? So we need to settle this in our own hearts. If life is going well for us today, don't assume you've earned it. Be thankful for God's grace. And if something is going poorly in your life, don't assume God's punishing you. That may or may not be the case. The wicked sometimes prosper, and the righteous sometimes suffer. Sometimes they die young. We have several examples in the Bible, from Abel to Naboth to Stephen to James. And let's not forget the greatest example, Jesus, who died in his early 30s. The most righteous man who ever walked the earth, the righteous one. And this is very important for us to to keep in mind. This is a sad world in which we live, Kohelet is saying. Why is this the case? There's no curved glass here. This is reality. The question is, what will we do when we face these extreme circumstances? We know to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord, but we still grieve. We still long for the new creation, don't we? I've been inspired recently by uh, the Scottish theologian and pastor of yesteryear, Thomas Boston. Uh, Matt mentioned him last week. He was a, a brilliant writer as well as a faithful pastor for over 25 years. But he had to persevere through terrible sufferings. One writer says, He was a melancholy man prone to seasons of discouragement in the Christian life. He was often in poor health, even though he never missed his turn in the pulpit. His wife suffered from chronic illness of the body and perhaps also of the mind. But their greatest trial was the death of their children. They lost six of their ten babies. He goes on. After such loss, many people would be tempted to accuse God of wrongdoing or to abandon their faith or at least to drop out of ministry for a while. That is not what Boston did. He believed in the goodness as well as the sovereignty of God. So rather than turning away from the Lord in his time of trial, he turned to the Lord for comfort. One of the last things that Boston published was a booklet on Ecclesiastes 7.13, who can make straight what he has made crooked? And he acknowledged the brokenness of the world, the pain of the world, but he remained faithful to the Lord in the midst of it. And that's real faith, isn't it? That we trust God when we don't have the answers. That we worship God even though we're going through trial. The great confession that Job makes is the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's real faith. That's admirable faith. When you can praise the Lord in the highlands as well as the heartache, in the shadows as well as the sunlight, on the good days and the bad days. Sometimes the righteous die young. And it's painful. And we grieve. But as we're going to see, it's not the last word. And we need to remember this as we think about the wickedness of this world. Those who have prolonged their life in wickedness may prosper in this life, they may not, as the next two verses say, but some may, but this life is not all there is. There's more to come, but right now there's sadness. Under the sun, there's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of grief. A few years back, some of you remember when uh, University of North Carolina was playing Kentucky in the final eight, and um, our elders did a very cruel thing in trying to sanctify me scheduling an elders' meeting during that game, right? <laughs> and so we made a rule, no computers, no phones. I don't want to know the score. I'm recording the game. We have our too-long meeting, and, I, 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 you know, got in the car, and I'm driving home, and I turned the radio off, I opened the garage, get in the garage, shut the garage, about to go into the house to watch this recorded game. And my son, the one who watches every Kentucky game, was in the garage playing the Wii, and just looks over and says, sad, Papa. And uh, absolutely deflated me, you know. I, and so fast forward through this game, watch Luke May make this shot and send us all home uh, crying. I was indeed a sad Papa. And there are many things in this life that will make you a sad Papa. And the death of the righteous is certainly one of them. But what we must remember is while the wicked may prosper, it's a short run. The righteous take the long view, a really long view. The future for the wicked is not bright. We should remember Psalm 73 where the psalmist says, he's lamenting this, and then he says, then I went to the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. No, I don't envy them, I pity them, right, So the question is, does it really pay to be righteous if you might still suffer and even die young? And the answer is yes, but it's not insurance that you'll live long, right? It doesn't mean you won't suffer, but it will pay off in eternity. You'll have billions of years to celebrate the fact that you trusted in Jesus and you walked in his ways, right? Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be surprised, they persecuted the prophets, they persecuted me, they may put you to death. Rejoice in this, that your reward is great in heaven. That's where the reward is. The reward is not in long days on this earth. The reward is in heaven. And so let's live with that mindset. Well, that's the first thing he says. That's a good point I think he makes. Um, We could pray and go home, but I got three more. The path of uh, real godliness. Now, again, this is a very uh, difficult passage where he says, be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. <laughs> Why should you destroy yourself? In verse 17, every teenager likes this verse. Be not overly wicked. So you could be a little wicked, right? <laughs> I can hear teenagers now quoting this verse to their parents. I was just not being able doing a little Ecclesiastes. Not overly wicked. Just wickedness in moderation, you know. Uh, what does this mean? Be not overly wicked. and um, and neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Well, we got some work to do here. We need to know what real godliness is and we need to know what it isn't. Don't be overly righteous, don't be overly wicked. Now, he's not advocating wickedness in moderation. He's not saying don't pursue godliness with passion. Overly wicked, overly righteous. Overly wicked uh, is, is, should be self-explanatory. He's, he said in verse uh, 15 that it is possible to pr- prolong your life and be a wicked person. You think of a gangster, a mobster. Think about somebody who all day long they're just plotting evil. Why on earth do they live a long time sometimes? Right. But he also says now to balance that in verse 17, you might actually die really young if you're wicked. Your, your foolishness might lead you to an early grave. So, young people, don't run with that crowd. That's kind of the point. Now, we we understand that part, don't we? Don't be be wicked um, and and, uh, doing things where all you do is think about evil because you you might die early. But what about overly righteous? Well, I would liken this to a Pharisee. The adjective overly is very important. There's a difference in righteousness and overly righteous. If the righteous person is the person who obeys God's word, the overly righteous person is the person who adds to God's word. And you do realize, my friends, that many people do this. They add so many rules to the Bible, that was the Pharisees, that nobody could even discern what the Bible was. And when you add to God's word, what you actually do is create your own religion. And when you add to God's word, you believe that God's word is not sufficient, you believe the Savior is not sufficient, you believe you're sufficient. So you don't trust in yourself. You don't do what the Bible actually says. You do your own stuff that you've invented, that you've developed. And kids who grow up in this legalistic, strict Pharisee uh, home often rebel against the faith. And the tragedy is they've never actually seen the real faith. And I just want to say, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, we're not calling you into this lifestyle. We're calling you to Jesus Christ, who was not Pharisee, nor was he wicked. And that's the path of real godliness. Jesus talks about it as the narrow way, doesn't he? There's a difference in being righteous, that is being in Christ, walking in him, and being overly righteous, and that is adding to the Bible all these extra rules, thinking that you can tie God's hands and God owes you. That's the kind of thing that he's talking about. Why be overly righteous and destroy yourself? I thought about uh, Martin Luther, for example, who before he was a Christian, tried everything to get guilt and shame off of him, making trips to Rome and praying up the steps and beating his body and fasting and doing all of these things. And then he comes to the gospel in Romans chapter one. And he, and he saw that there is a righteousness that's given, not earned, that it's received, not, a, not achieved. And that righteousness made Luther dance in the streets. It liberated him. That's not the kind of religion that he's talking about here. This religion oppresses people. A works-based, man-made system. Don't destroy yourself. Don't exhaust yourself. Instead, come to Jesus, whose invitation is, "I'll, I'll give you rest. The Pharisees were not giving people rest. Jesus gives us rest. And that's the path, you see? And that path is explained for us in verse 18, when it says, it is good that you should take hold of this. That is the teaching that he's just talked about. And from that, withhold not your hand. Reach out and grab this. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. That is from both extremes. So avoid self-righteousness. Avoid the Pharisee. Avoid the wicked. Keep your eye on Jesus. Stick to Jesus. That's the narrow path. That's the path of godliness. And that's the one who fears God. Jesus is the premier example of one who fears God. You see, the overly righteous person really doesn't fear God. Right? Not in a healthy sense. The the, the overly righteous person is trusting in self. They're trusting in their own wisdom. That's what I think he means by don't be overly wise. Don't add things to Scripture. No, receive it as it is and embrace it. The person who fears God stands in awe of God. The person who fears God depends exclusively on him. The person who fears God stands in awe of his forgiveness, as Psalm 130 says. If you kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. His forgiveness leads us to fear, but the overly righteous has no sin to confess. They don't understand grace, they don't understand forgiveness, and therefore they don't have the right kind of fear of God. So, don't go the path of the irreligious and don't go the path of the overly righteous. Stick to Christ. Follow Him and you'll avoid these extremes. You see it plainly in various places in the gospel. Luke 15 is a classic example the story of two sons. You got one uh, younger brother who tells his dad, I don't want any, I, I just want my inheritance. I want to get out of the house. I'm gone. And he leaves. And he spends it all, squanders it, the text says, on prostitutes and reckless living and so on. Loses everything, his money, his friends, and he's eating with the pigs. And he comes to his senses and says, I'm going to rise and go to my father. Maybe he'll treat me like a servant. Even that would be better than this. And to his great delight, he finds his father receiving him, forgiving him, embracing him, kissing him putting a robe on him, putting a ring on him, putting sandals on him, killing a calf for him because his son who was dead is now alive. But the other brother, the elder brother, was a scorekeeper. And he says, I kept all the rules. You never killed a calf for me. He was condescending, he was smug, and he was angry at the father because the Pharisees hate grace. They don't understand grace. And both of those sons needed salvation. And the same is true today. You can be lost in religion or you can be lost in irreligion. You can be lost in hedonism or you can be lost in Phariseeism. What we all need together is Jesus Christ, the one who came to live the life we can never live, who was the righteous one, and he gives us rest, and he shows us the path of godliness. That's what Ecclesiastes is helping us see, the path of godliness. Number three, so far so good, I think. I hope, is the problem of sin. It gets no easier, friends. Uh, People today spend all sorts of time thinking about what is the real problem of life? What's the real problem with the world? And we don't want to be simplistic, but we do want to say, this is the problem. It's called sin. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Orient Express or read it, if you're more of a reader. If you haven't, I'm about to spoil it. Um, But the... The, the basic plot is there's a murder on a, on a train, on a trip. And this detective has to decide which of these, I think it's 12 people, committed this murder. And what does he conclude at the end? But they are all in on it. And it's, it's a great little parable, I think, of humanity. What's the problem? It's sin. And we're all in on it. We've all contributed to it. That's what Solomon begins to probe now the darkest mystery of the human heart. He begins with something positive, verse 19, and says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man. Um, the wise man on earth who does good, I'm oh, sorry. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. So we've said this before, but, but we are to pursue wisdom. Here, wisdom has the great advantage of, of giving you strength. That is, it, it will help you be faithful, it will protect, it will guard your thinking, it will govern your, your speaking. So wisdom is to be pursued. But while wisdom may help us be faithful, it doesn't mean we will be perfect. What the next verse goes on to show us is that even the wise are sinners. Right after saying this about wisdom, he says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, this is a very humbling verse. It's a very sobering verse, not a very popular verse. He highlights both kinds of sins, sins of omission and sins of commission. Right? We don't do what we should do and we do what we shouldn't do. That's what he means when he says who does good and never sins. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, this verse ought to sound familiar uh, because uh, the phrase uh, none is righteous is translated exactly the same. In here in Ecclesiastes 7.20 and Romans 3.10. It seems to be the text Paul is alluding to in that whole list where he quotes a bunch of Old Testament verses. And so uh, the Kohelet's getting his his Paul on here. uh, Or Paul's getting his Kohelet on uh, in Romans chapter 3. Declaring that everyone, even the wise, are sinners. Which tells us a lot. That even the godly can act ungodly. Even people who've been in ministry for 40 years can fall. Proverbs 29, who can say, I've made my heart pure, I am clean from sin? Answer, nobody. Solomon's not looking at life through this carnival mirror. He's looking at reality. Not everyone likes this description of humanity, but we need it. And it shows us why we need the Redeemer. Now, if you object to this statement about humanity, he has a proof. He has an argument. And coming behind it in verse 21 is uh, an observation about life that illustrates the doctrine of sin. And it comes with the way we talk. He says, do not take to heart the things that people say. How many of you know people might say something about you if you were to eavesdrop? (laughs) Uh, Lest you hear your servant cursing you. Uh, again, this is just real talk, right? Uh, people will sin against you with their words. Sometimes they will gossip about you. Sometimes they will curse you. Sometimes they will slander you. Perhaps you've experienced this recently. In Romans chapter 3, in that long list of sins of, that he, he mentions from the Old Testament allusions, many of them have to do with the sin of speech. So he says, lest you deny, verse 20, that every person who's ever lived is sinful. Just think about the way people talk. And if you were to hear what people are saying about you, um, you wouldn't like it. And I like how he says, I don't take it to heart. <laughs> don't take it to heart. And then he comes right behind it, lest you get a little self-righteous about the person who's speaking ill of you. And he says, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. You're like, no, I haven't. Yes, you have, Right. <laughs> So the, there's, it's, it, the point is, like, it's all around us. If we heard people talking, it would, it would offend us. And, but we've got to come right behind it and say, I'm a man of unclean lips myself. You've done the same thing. Again, it's driving us to why we need a Savior. Verse 23 and 24. All this I have tested by wisdom. I have said I will be wise, but it was far from me. You see, there's a, I can't get to the bottom of my, of my quest for meaning, of explanation. He's searching diligently. You see, because, because Solomon never got to the gospel. He never got to Jesus, the embodiment of wisdom. There's, there's only so much observation, only so far observation of humanity can take you you need more than that. You need Christ. He says it's far off. It's deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And then as he begins to think more deeply about how sin and temptation work, he gives us a a particular example. And he says in 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom in the scheme of things, to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So that's the category. Let's think about scheming. Let's think about plotting let's think about wickedness where do you go Solomon for an example of this well with a man who had over a thousand women this is a good one he goes to women now here again I have to clarify several things (laughs) Um, this is written by a man so let's all if you can follow me on that you could easily flip this okay but this is a man's experience, Solomon, who's, who's writing. We know men can be predators too, okay? We all know that. Uh, they can be, you know, have these snares and these nets as well. Um, so this is, this is not just saying that women are the ones who are doing all the tempting and they're doing all the prowling. Um, some of them are, and, but there are dudes who are doing the same. But this is a crude dude's experience. He's describing uh, his experience. And he says, Here, here's where I, I've seen sin and temptation and destruction. I have seen it in this woman." He says, "...something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters." This woman is, is out to destroy. And so he brings up this, this story. Now, there is an argument that he ma- might not be talking simply about a woman who's uh, a temptress, but he could be speaking of lady folly, uh, like Proverbs, where the woman, uh, there's lady folly and lady wisdom, where the, the woman represents any kind of foolish decision you could make. So that is, that is a, an argument. But I think it's best to stick with Ecclesiastes before jumping to Proverbs and to keep this in Solomon's own experience. I think he's, he's targeting this particular kind of sin and temptation because this was his downfall, Right? This was Solomon's downfall, and he he says that she has evil intentions in mind, and the, the appropriate response is to please God and escape her, and not be taken by her. Now, today guys may not have a thousand women plus like Solomon, but you can have that many online, right? It's not hard to apply this text. Don't let that seductive image lure you into sin and destruction. Rather, in your heart, please God and escape her. Please God. You see, it's not enough just to say no. It's you saying yes to God. Right, what you have to determine and get settled in your heart is that my life is, to, is about pleasing God. It's not about gratifying my flesh. It's not about not getting caught by people. It's about pleasing God. That's what keeps a person pure. You know, a great example of this is in Genesis 38 and 39. These chapters could not be more different. Chapter 38 is arguably the most scandalous chapter in the Bible, right, with Tamar, who seduces Judah, and foolish Judah gives in. And the very next page, you flip over to chapter 39, you read about Joseph, who's been betrayed by his brothers, who's been sold into slavery, who's living in Egypt, and he gets tempted every day by a lady named Potiphar's wife, and uh, right. And and the Bible says in 39 that Gen- that Joseph was handsome, very very handsome. And you can imagine he's got his tank top on. He's out there, you know, building pyramids. And Potiphar's wife is, is just out there scheming, plotting, checking him out, sizing him up every day. Was saying, "Come lie with me. Come lie with me." And Joseph. Please God, and escaped her. And he even says this line that I've always been moved by. He says, I will not sin against my God. Because sin, first and foremost, is against God. And he had determined in his heart, let me think about it, he could advance his career, nobody would know about it. What happens in Egypt stays in Egypt. Right? No, no, I will not sin against my God. So that's how the Bible says we, we deal with this, guys. You please God and escape her. You don't flirt around with it. No, you flee. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 cannot be more clear. Flee sexual immorality. What do you do when it comes up? You flee. You run. Flee is that Greek word fugo. Where we get the word uh, fugitive from? Be a fugitive. Run like Harrison Ford, right, from all forms. Can't catch that man. Some of you young folk have to YouTube that. That's a movie, uh, Fugitive, okay? That's the point. Now, lest we thought that was the end of it, it's not. 27 and 28 are quite uh, perplexing and shocking as well. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find out the scheme of things. I was reading this this passage to our kids this week at dinner, I said, kids, just wait for it. I want you to explain verse 28 to me, okay? Which my soul has sought repeatedly. But I have not found one man among a thousand, I have found. But a woman among all these, I have not found. Solomon, why did you write this? Right? <laughs> why? Why? Wait, people are going to send me so many emails, Solomon. They're going to they're curse me, but I'm not going to listen to them because he's told me not to already in the <laughs> verse, right? Don't, I'm not taking to heart what you might say. I'm not, I can't do it, okay? But but here it is. Solomon says, one guy in a thousand, I found him. I haven't found one lady. I've not found one good woman on the earth. What about that? I'm just reading the Bible, guy. I'm just reading the Bible, okay? (laughs) was, Was he just having a bad day? I mean, was he depressed? Was he listening to country music? You're just drinking Johnny Walker, like thinking about all the blues and all, all the brokenhearted uh, experiences he'd had. Was he a chauvinist? Was he a sexist? Well, I don't know. I'm just going to skip it. <laughs> I'm not going to skip it. We're going we're to we're sizzle, okay? Now, whatever we make about this verse, here's the ground rule for interpreting this verse. We have to keep it verse 20 in mind, where Solomon's already told us, there's not a righteous man on the earth. All right? So whoever this one man is, uh, he's not righteous either. Um, So therefore, it's basically the same thing, is it not? Uh, It's just kind of the way he says it, that it leaves a bit of a sting, doesn't it, ladies? Um, Because all the ladies in the house are saying, yeah, I can't find a guy either. He's like, one in a thousand, I don't know where he's at. I haven't found him. And they're like, amen. And then he comes right behind it and says, zero women. you are like, you just want to kind of bow up on, on Solomon. Now, it's possible that he's, he's referring to this seductress. He has somebody in mind. Uh, it, it may just be the, the way of, of speaking. Many people have just said this is a proverb. It's hyperbole. You, you see this sort of thing when you see uh, wisdom literature. Um, he's basically saying the same thing. He's affirming the sinfulness of humanity, men and women alike. He just says it in a, in a bit of a shocking way. But I think he's, this is probably a reflection more on Solomon than a reflection on any uh, gender uh, statement here you see this is a guy who chased godless women it's no wonder he couldn't find a righteous one <laughs> he is the one who wrote an excellent wife who can find and Solomon would have to cl- conclude I didn't now Solomon even knows there are good women right I've told my kids this week by the way I've, I found the one he didn't know about uh, in the Bible but in, in chapter 9, verse 9, he says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Now, you can't enjoy life with a wife unless, you know, the wife whom you love, unless she is a good woman. So Solomon has a category for a good woman, and the Bible certainly does. Um, Luke chapter 8 gives us a number of examples of, of single women who supported the ministry of Jesus. Proverbs 31 is a great picture of a godly woman. We could look at Ruth, we could look at Esther, and so on. Again, I think the fact that Solomon never knew any of these women reflects more on his own life. He chased idolatrous women when he was told not to. It destroyed him and it led the kingdom into great ruin. Ryken summarizes it saying, the preacher king who wrote Ecclesiastes did not know any women like that, which is why, what a man gets for trying to love a thousand godless women. Don't try to love a thousand godless women. The point he's making again is that wisdom is rare, that sin is pervasive. Even the best men and women are sinners saved by grace. Which gets us to the grace of redemption, verse 29. Here's Solomon's conclusion, he says, see this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the whole human race Solomon mentions. So there's really no point in arguing who is more or less righteous than the other. At the end of the day, we're all sinners and that is the great equalizer. This verse is important because it teaches us about creation. God made man. Again, Hebrew word Adam, he made humanity. But, here's fall, creation fall. They have sought out many schemes. Now, if you're new to the Bible or you're just exploring the faith we often describe the story of the Bible like this, creation, fall, redemption, new creation, or something like that. And here we see creation and fall, but again, we have the great benefit of having the whole Bible. And so we, we reflect now with the whole Bible on creation, fall, redemption, and we look forward to new creation. Creation, God made us, and our first parents were righteous but they've sought out many schemes. Sin entered the world through the great schemer, Satan, tempting our first parents. And as sin entered the world, the scheming is is pervasive. In the very next chapter of the Bible, chapter 4 of Genesis, one brother schemes against his own brother and kills him. Paul says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But that's not the end of the Bible. Fortunately, we have more than just the first seven chapters of Ecclesiastes. (laughs) David's greatest son was not Solomon, but Jesus. And Jesus never sinned. He was the righteous one who came to earth and embodied wisdom. He never committed a sin with the forbidden woman. He never sinned with his lips one time. And then Jesus Christ died on behalf of those who did. He died on behalf of the wicked, the unwise, the self-righteous, those who have hurt people with their words, those who continue to, to be lured into temptation again and again and again. The Bible teaches us that Adam was not the last Adam. A second Adam, Jesus Christ, came to save sinners like us. He came to crush the head of the serpent, that great schemer, and give us redemption. And it is through Jesus Christ we have the forgiveness of sins. We have a new heart. We have a righteousness given to us by faith. Redeeming grace for Adam's helpless race has been provided. That's so why Paul says, For it because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. How do I get righteous? It's a free gift that we receive gratefully. Reign, we will reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is what we do with the problem of sin. We go to Jesus Christ. We repent of sin. We find forgiveness in Christ. We find justification, right standing with God. And the good news isn't finished there, is it? As we think about new creation to come, Jesus has not only dealt with our sin, he's not only raised us to life, but he will come again to judge the world in righteousness. He will reverse the curse. He will transform this pain-filled world. He will wipe away tears from our faces. He will look at this world and transform this world. This sad, sinful, and scheming world will be made a happy, holy, and harmonious world through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Solomon may not have known all of that, but we have the great privilege of having the whole story of redemption. I thought about John Newton, whose memorable words capture this well when he says on his dying bed, my memory's nearly gone. But I remember two things. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. Great sinner, that's reality. Great savior, that's redemption. Praise God, his grace is greater than our sin. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. Oh, we see ourselves in Ecclesiastes. We see ourselves perplexed. We see ourselves frustrated. We see ourselves as frail, as people who are on our way to death. We see ourselves as sinners. We see ourselves as schemers. And then we see Jesus Christ. And we see his grace. And we see the promises. And we're thankful for the gospel today. Lord Jesus, we bless you. We praise you all that you are and all that you have done and all that you will do for your people. Gladden our hearts afresh now as we prepare to take the table. In your good name we pray, amen.